Hello, g'day. Welcome to the finale of Party in China, also known as Series 2, Episode 31. As it's the finale, I'd like to thank Wayne Foxy Fox for all his hard work and his excellent production, and Hugh at Bytes.com. Now, I shan't thank, but should mention the lying bitch who ruined my life, as she's why I ended up in China. And party in a happy, stable relationship doesn't sound as funny. As I was breaking my Aston contract, Summer said that she didn't have to pay me, unless I returned to Ganyu Foreign Language School. The next morning was bitterly cold with gale force gusts. Yet Sean and I found ourselves seated outside each classroom to administer exams. One of us at the front and one at the back doors. In typically us about fashion, the students came out to us individually and we had a minute or so to assess each child's vocabulary, comprehension and grammar. Waste of time, a freezing farce. Most students didn't answer anything at all. I had checked that they weren't snapped frozen by letting the exam sheets blow away so they'd run and fetch them. Some were okay on simple questions like what is your name, but flummoxed by what is your favorite color or what does your father do? Although one boy earnestly informed me that his dad was a bus jumper. But he had no answer to my follow-up question, like evil Knievel? Things got better after lunch. Summer had bought us each an electric warming cushion, so one part of the body would be toasty while the rest grew icicles. And we'd moved upstairs to the next grade, so several of my Aston students were now being tested. It was nice to just give them an A and enjoy a friendly chat, rather than have to try and crowbar an answer out of an obdurate brain. I'd also brought a large hot coffee and taken the precaution of adding a generous dollop of Johnny Walker Red, which may be why when I asked the student to write their name in Chinese on the score sheet, I started adding things like, I just need your John Hancock on this Chinese declaration of independence. Please sign this petition to make One Direction go both ways. Make an X here, son, and you'll be joining the United States Marines. Sign your name across my heart. I want you to be my baby. Sean overheard me and joined in with some good lines, but the only one I still remember was probably the best of the afternoon. In sleazy car salesman patter, he told one bewildered student, Just write your name there, sir, and you'll be driving home in that shiny new Winnebago. After a day of icy invigilation, I'd been advised to <coughs> myself, my mother, my father, and family dozens of times, without an explosion of vengeance as they'd all had the sense to yell it from another floor. Summer was embarrassed and urged me to identify the culprits, but there were thousands of kids, all wearing the same uniform and all looking unnaturally innocent. 
Besides, it no longer sent me into a rage. I'd given up. The next day, the lesson was about household chores, and one teenage boy up the back kept calling out and getting big laughs. I probably wouldn't have minded if he'd been doing it in English, but he wasn't, so I made his classmates move their desks sufficiently for me to squeeze through and stand next to him, which had no effect at all. He was supremely unintimidated and continued being loud and, I assume, funny, until one of the chores in the textbook was emptying the garbage bin, something which happened rarely in that classroom, judging by the odour of the overflowing bin beside me. When I read out the garbage bin, I lifted it up high and demonstrated empty the garbage bin by upending it on his head. It earned the loudest and longest laugh of the day. But he contributed by not removing the bin. That's dedication. I walked out of the class and the school convinced that my Chinese adventure was over. I didn't think I could sink any lower. And then I did. The battery of the Can You Flash was Can You Flash. So I was walking home from Suguo with a couple of shopping bags of groceries, mainly German beer, really, when my path was crossed by three men in their mid-twenties heading for the Bank of Agriculture. They paused on the steps of the bank to yell, Hello! at me. When I said nothing, just nodded as I passed. One of them yelled, Yo! to my back, and they all laughed and went inside. I stood absolutely still in the street for a little while, wishing that I'd kept count over the months, because then I'd know exactly how many times people can tell me to f*** myself before I completely lose my mind. When I burst through the glass doors of the bank, one of the three was using an ATM. The other two saw the murderous look in my eyes and helpfully pointed him out as the perp. I grabbed his shoulder and spun him around, yelling, No, f*** you, you little... But before I could finish my sentence and throw a punch, he ran. Backwards. Literally ran. This dickhead was faster and nimbler in reverse than I was going forward. I chased him around the bank in between rows of chairs in front of astonished customers, tellers and a single useless security guard. We did two laps before I realised two things. Number one, I wasn't getting any closer to catching him. And number two, assaulting someone in a bank full of cameras was like yelling boo in a tattoo parlour. There could well be permanent consequences. His two mates were still watching near the front doors as I left and I gave one of them a clip behind the ear. Unfair, but it made me feel better. Summer sadly accepted my written resignation and her daughter Grace burst into huge sobs when she heard I was leaving. We'd gotten on very well. I left the school and travelled straight to Lian Yunggang to invite Elena to come to Australia with me. She seemed both flattered and flustered. 
She worried that she wouldn't find work in Australia as she'd watched Aussie girls pole dance on YouTube and said they were much better than her, which I frankly couldn't imagine. So I doubled down and pointed out that she could work in Australia if we were husband and wife. I was confident that her attitude would change with my proposal. And I was right. Her doubts completely disappeared. She definitely did not want to marry me. Irish John had told me that he and Cherie were splitting up, but that she and I should catch up when I passed through Shanghai. Still, I was surprised to receive her text saying she could book a hotel room for me if I liked. I did like. And she texted back that I'd be staying at the Shanghai Magnificent Hotel. Magnificent was a bit of a stretch, but it was twice as nice as the places where I usually stayed probably because it cost twice as much. Cherie suggested the House of Blues and Jazz near the Bund for our drink. It's a cool club, friendly people, great music, and an acceptable selection of European beers. A little bit pricey, but so is Shanghai compared to the smaller cities. The decor had a speakeasy feel. Floor to ceiling, blood red drapes covered most of the wooden walls. Small tables were crowded together, the band played on a small corner stage, and the dance floor was tiny. Fortunately, most people didn't dance. Especially fortunate when I started flinging Cherie around in some jive moves. She'd insisted she couldn't dance, but she was a quick learner. We even bowed to accept audience applause. I was having a great time with Cherie and spoiled it all by saying how sorry I was that she was about to break up with John. She hadn't heard about that, and left to make a phone call. But after her example, other partners were very willing to be twirled, juggled and dipped. The last night in China was a real hoot. My last morning in China, less so. I slept through the alarm and hadn't worked out how to get to the airport yet. During rushed ablutions and blurry repacking, again leaving a stack of stuff behind, I remembered the Maglev Express train, a high-speed shuttle between the airport and Longyang Road station. Maglev is a contraction of magnetic levitation, a comfortable train which floats on an invisible cushion of opposing forces. The ride feels like the rolling suspension of an old Rolls-Royce or a Cadillac. I really liked it. And I really liked not missing my plane home. It was fabulous to be back in Sydney, but I felt that I'd failed yet again. China 2, Kaslo nil. At least this time I'd been a real teacher. I'd actually helped the Aston students and their teachers with their English language skills. But twice now, I'd failed to jump the culture gap and lived in near constant confusion as a functioning illiterate. Before China, I'd been known for not suffering fools happily, but now I'd been suffering as a fool very unhappily myself. 
I remember that when I was taught the Chinese call China the Middle Kingdom, it was because it was between heaven and hell. But that first character, Zhong, also means the centre of a city or a town. The Middle Kingdom is, by definition, the nation at the centre of everything. Every other ethnicity or nationality is further away from the most important place on the planet. They're at least unlucky, if not unworthy. Now, this is a medieval mindset. It could change with education and experience, particularly international travel, because until you leave your house, you can't know how the neighbours see it. It's said this will be China's century, surpassing the USA in financial, political and military importance within 10, 20 and 30 years, respectively. But if my tale of widespread incompetence and ignorance is true, how can this be true? I have a theory. It's because... They don't use toilet seats. What the Now stay with me here. Despite some close calls, I never squatted over a foul hole. But I saw and smelled hundreds of them and I'm convinced they're responsible for China's upcoming world domination. One of the most vexing problems in any Western heterosexual relationship is whether the toilet seat was left up or down. Consider how many arguments it starts, the stress it causes, and the colossal waste of time. Let's say the average couple argues about the toilet seat for just five minutes a week. I know that's low, but I'm making a point. Five minutes a week is more than four hours a year. Now, let's guesstimate that of the 1.4 something billion Chinese, 750 million are in heterosexual relationships. Again, that's low, but it means that the Chinese aren't wasting over 3 billion hours a year, four by 750 million, and we are. So in every decade, China's population enjoys 30 billion extra hours to work more, study more, and make more Chinese people who will enjoy more than 30 billion extra hours to work more, study more, you get the idea. So if you're worried about a Chinese conquest of the planet, here's my suggestion to you. If the seat is down, gentlemen, lift it up. If the seat is up, ladies, put it down. And if my suffering and personal failure in China helps save the world for democracy, you're welcome. In the next episode of Party in China, oh, there isn't one. But the all-new expanded and improved audiobook will be available as soon as possible. While you wait, why not go to Party in China on Patreon and donate enough for me to buy a beer? I promise I'll say cheers to you before I drink it. I'll soon be back with some sort of new podcast. Don't know what yet, but I will once again say, I'm Party Parslow. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.